Let's join together and let's pray. Father God, as we gather here this morning and uh, begin a, a new church year together, uh, there's much activity. Uh, our minds are occupied and, and preoccupied. Lord, we pray that as we begin, uh, as we lay foundations for the, the weeks and months ahead, uh, we do that paying attention to you, listening carefully to what you would have to say to us. Lord, come and speak to us through your word and give us the grace to, to hear what you have to say. Amen. When I was growing up, uh, bumper stickers were much more prevalent on cars than they are today. I don't know if people remember that. People around about. I think I probably was a, a child and a young teenager in the heyday of the bumper sticker. It seemed like the 80s were, were a, a very strong period. And you maybe remember the kind of thing I'm, I'm talking about. Most of them weren't all that edifying, really, if I'm honest. Um, things like, don't drink and drive, you might spill it, um, is one that, that came to mind, I remembered. Um, Be nice to your kids, they'll choose your nursing home. Uh, was another that, that I remember. I remember the quite a common one was that you'd see a rusty old Chevette or, or the like driving around with a sticker, my other car is a Porsche. The day I really smiled though was the day I saw a Porsche driving around with that sticker on it. I, I thought that was a, a, a nice touch. Bumper stickers were just a a good way for, for people to, to create humour and catch the eye while we're all out on the roads. They were so prevalent at, at that point, it wasn't long before Christians got in the act too. So you'd see a bumper sticker, don't follow me, follow Jesus. Or, or very common, just a simple, Jesus saves, uh, stuck on the back of a car. At first glance, that seems like a great thing to, to have hundreds or thousands of stickers driving around Britain with this, this very important message, Jesus saves. That, that seems like a great thing. But on reflection, I wondered if there was a downside to that as well. Jesus saves becoming just a, a slogan. Uh, I think it's maybe become that in our Ulster culture. We've seen it nailed to trees uh, on remote country roads. Uh, we see it plastered in, in neon colours outside particular types of churches. We've reduced this, this glorious gospel reality into a, a piece of graffiti or, or a bumper sticker. Friends, it's the basic message of the, the gospel of the Bible that Jesus saves. But I think we've lost track in a large part of what that means. I'm not sure it means very much anymore uh, to, to many people in our culture, at least not what God intended it to mean. If we're going to understand what that means, that Jesus saves or that he has saved us or, or that he wants to save uh, some of us, uh, then we're going to have to go back 
to the place where we first learned about salvation, uh, the place where we learned that God is a saving God. And that place, of course, is the Bible. Claire's already said that we're going to start a new series in Exodus. Exodus is all about God saving his people. That's it. Uh, We'll see that time and time again over these next weeks. We're going to get a feel as we read Exodus together of of how salvation actually works. How how it really happens in real life. Uh, And that's our hope that we're going to learn together about God's salvation. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, tells the story of how God created human beings and began to work among them. At one point in the narrative, the focus falls on on one man, Abraham, and the rest of the story then tells of God's dealings uh, with Abraham's family, with his sons Isaac uh, and his grandson Jacob. So whenever we come into Exodus, we pick up where where Genesis left off, and, and the opening verses tell us about the time when 70 people came to live in Egypt. The descendants of Jacob, they came down to Egypt. And you'll remember uh, that that was a time when when Joseph uh, was the prime minister of Egypt. Even if you don't know it from your Bible, you'll know it from Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. How how these 70 uh, sons of Jacob, descendants of Jacob, come to be in Egypt. We're picking up the story, though, 400 years later, 400 years, from here that will bring us back to 1609, it's a long time, things have changed in Egypt, Joseph, the great prime minister, uh, the one who was an advocate for his, his small number uh, of, uh, of friends and family in Egypt, he's no longer around, and the present administration, they, they just don't remember anything much about Joseph or those days. They have no particular interest in Joseph's people or in looking after them. So the Israelites are, are just like many people have found themselves over the years in the history of our world. They're immigrants. Uh, they're probably suspected. And the biblical narrative tells us to add to the problem that they have an alarmingly high birth rate. I think even of our Ulster context today and how we think of immigrants... Think of how we have talked in recent years about other communities that have an alarmingly high birth rate. The suspicion of, of Israel in this community is, is just reaching boiling point. So Pharaoh conscripts the Israelites into forced labor. He's thinking, well, this is my way of, of keeping them under control. And he uses them to build uh, big cities, uh, store cities, Pithom and Ramses. It seems that there were far more Israelites than he needed, so he he decides on a bit of ethnic cleansing along his own lines. First of all, he goes to to the midwives. Uh, He he instructs them, he orders them, if you see a Hebrew son born, uh, kill him. And of course, they don't do it. So whenever it becomes clear that plan A isn't working, Pharaoh moves quickly to plan B. He moves beyond the, the... the midwives, he orders all of his people, if you see a Hebrew boy, kill him. We're talking here about something like living in Germany in the late 1930s uh, when the, the extermination of the Jews began. If you find a Jew in your community, expose them. 
Help us get rid of them. So the outlook for the Israelites at this point is extremely bleak. Even if you're no historian, you'll probably have a sense that that the Egypt of, of this time that we're talking about was massively significant on a world stage. It was probably the, the world superpower, or at least the superpower of, uh, of that part of the East. Four or five millennia later, we still, still see evidence of the Egypt of this time. Uh, if you think of, uh, of the Great Pyramids, the, the Sphinxes, those, those hieroglyphics, those beautiful and ornate gods... They tell us of, of the power of Egypt at this time, of the, the longevity of the Egyptian dynasties. Egypt is power, it's beauty, Egypt is headline news. It's quite interesting then to see how the, the biblical narrator in Exodus 1 tells this story. He doesn't make a big deal really of the Egyptian culture or even of the pharaoh. You'll notice that the pharaoh isn't even given a name. The only two names in chapter 1 are of two humble, ordinary Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. These women are low on the, the social ladder. They're part of this excluded community. And yet these two get the dignity of having a name. Pharaoh mentioned just in passing. Folks, this, this salvation that God is going to work, that we're going to learn about over these next weeks, it's for ordinary people. There's no privilege before God for, for world leaders or world superpowers. People like Shifra and Pua, people going around their, their own business, delivering babies or whatever, they're involved in God's salvation and it can easily pass by the great and the good. This salvation that we're going to be learning about is for, for you. As you traipse out day after day to the office. Or as you stay at home. Uh, maybe with the kids. Or as you continue year after year to give care to an elderly a parent or relative. This is for ordinary people. People very much like us. So the scene is set here in chapter 1. Pharaoh's oppressing the the Israelites. He's trying to kill all the Hebrew boys. And then chapter 2 begins with a a wonderful uh, new hope for us. There's a new baby born. A Hebrew mother and her daughter hide the baby in a basket on the Nile River. And things go from that, that awfully dangerous position for the baby things couldn't go better if you wrote the script you wouldn't dream of this because what happens is he's discovered by Egyptians on the Nile not only do they not kill him but he's adopted into to Pharaoh's daughter's family she names him Moses and brings her right into his household so finally after four centuries on the margins Israel once more has a person in power. It's very likely that they didn't have a spokesperson much since the time of Joseph. So the first time for hundreds of years, they have a champion for their cause. They have a prince of Egypt, as the filmmakers said. 
So we're hoping and we're waiting that Moses is going to save them. That Moses is going to work salvation for his people. In the second half of chapter 2, we we soon realize that that's not going to happen. Moses' first efforts to try and, and help his people to save them just go very badly wrong. It, you'll, you'll maybe remember the story. He, one day he found an Egyptian beating uh, one of his fellow Hebrews. So in a, in a rage of fury, Moses kills the Egyptian. Now that murder didn't end up making him a hero with his own people. Uh, and it certainly made him a, a likely criminal uh, before the Egyptian hierarchy. So Moses did the only thing that was left for him to do, and that is that he ran. He ran to the desert, and we're told that he married into the family of Jephro, the priest of Midian. So we're back where we started. Chapter 2 has been a bit of a, a false dawn. The people are still in slavery. The one person who, who might have helped, who had the, the influence and the power to do something for them, has fled and is living in obscure exile. If you read this story, take it at face value and compare it with other moments in the life of Israel, it's very possible that this is the darkest moment of all. Things don't get any worse for for Israel than this. Folks, we've dealt with the story very quickly and now we're going to take a step back from that and have a look at what's going on. Did you pay attention to what God has been doing throughout these first two chapters? Do you see what he's done about his people's suffering? Nothing. God's only mentioned once in the first two chapters. He simply mentioned as the God of Shifra and Pua. The narrator is making the point, yes, there were people who, who loved God and, and were being faithful to him. He's reminding us of the good that came out of this. But at no point in these first couple of chapters does the, the, the biblical author give us any sense that God himself intervenes. Take the story at face value. And it seems that God is doing nothing. Friends, we're not going to skirt over this uh, part of this story this morning. Before we charge on into Exodus chapter 3, we need to to slow down for a moment and reflect on on what, what this experience of Israel was like and And be honest about the times when we experience life in in somewhat similar ways. There are many times in human history and many times in your life and in mine where we have sensed the absence of God. We aren't clear what God is doing. We're not sure God's doing anything at all. Like the people of Israel, we go for these long periods experiencing what feels like the absence of God. Well, well, what are we to make of that? 
And what are we to do about that? How should we react? Well, if we are honest, if we're willing to be honest about our experience of the absence of God, but yet at the same time are willing to do what we're doing here this morning, and that is is look at God's word together, then we're going to discover soon enough that we're not alone. Sometimes when you're in churches, when you're among other Christians, and you feel like God's not a part of your life, that he seems as distant as possible, you feel very alone. Because there's a sense that everyone else is doing fine. People talk about God as if he's their best friend right beside them. We sing as if it's the most natural thing in the world. All of us connecting with God easily and naturally. The Bible tells a different story. The psalmists often lament the fact that God's not around. In Psalm 22, David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. On other occasions, the psalmist talks about his enemies who are confronting him, sickness that's getting him down, and he talks about these in ways that let us know that he doesn't sense God's helping presence. God's absence is also the subject of the book of Job. In chapter 23, Job speaks about God and he says, If I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he's at work in the north, I don't see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. For Job, God's absent. He's nowhere to be found. Folks, there's no place in the whole of the Bible where we're more confronted by the absence of God than when Jesus himself hangs on the cross. He he reaches back to Psalm 22, that Psalm of David, and as he hangs on the cross, he cries out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken? I wonder what he meant by those words. Could it be that Jesus really felt abandoned by God? Folks, it seems to me that that's exactly the case. Whenever Jesus hung on the cross, he was identifying fully with our human experience. We're very quick in our evangelicalism to say, yes, he identified us with us. He carried our sin at that moment. And that's right. But we want to say this morning that he identified with us in another way. At that moment, he experienced the absence of God. In a very real and in a very full way, Jesus experienced what it was to be separated from his father. John Calvin said that these words of Jesus on the cross are the best commentary 
of our, the profession that we make in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell. At that moment, Jesus descended into hell. He was in that place where God is not. He was separated from God. Friends, I know that what I'm saying here isn't a bundle of laughs. But I wonder whether this this darker side of the biblical revelation might not serve as a profound encouragement to some of us or maybe even many of us here this morning. As we come to terms with our own sense of the absence of God, to know that the biblical writers were honest absolutely honest about the absence of God as they experienced it. To know that Jesus himself knew that. Knowing that Jesus has been through this dark, dark place might be the very thing that that can give hope to, to me and to you for those times when God seems a million miles away for us. Knowing this might be the thing that that keeps us open to, to Jesus and his grace, that gives us courage to persevere. If you can get away from the happy, clappy positivism that, that dominates much of our church lives today, There's actually a way of understanding the absence of God as a normal part of Christian faith. In the classic book on the subject, The Dark Night of the Soul, John of the Cross talks about a sense of of the absence of God that comes particularly in the lives of those people who are most serious about following Jesus. This isn't something that happens for people who are disinterested. In fact, if you're disinterested in following Jesus, it's unlikely that you'll ever have an acute sense of the absence of God because that's not important to you. But John of the Cross talks of of the very people who have their hearts set on most experiencing life with God. And he talks of times, a dark night of the soul when God seems absent. It's as though God retreats from us. So that we can can learn to trust him in even deeper ways than we ever would if, if we always knew him here beside us and always knew him holding our hand. It's something deeper, something more to the core that God is trying to work in us. Perhaps you've experienced that. Maybe you're experiencing it right now have been for weeks, months, years. The dark night of the soul is no walk in the park. No one would ever choose it for themselves. But please know this. If you're living through a period where God seems absent from your life, it doesn't mean that it's all over between you and God. It's been the experience of many of God's most faithful people throughout the centuries.
As I was preparing for this sermon in, in one of the books that I was reading, I came across what I think was, was good biblical wisdom on this subject. What, what we might do or how we might think our way forward. Let me offer it to you very quickly. Four, four different little aspects to it. Firstly, there's no need to throw out your, your trust in the Bible as God's word or your, your basic theological commitments if you feel that God is absent from your life at the moment. There's no need to do that. Because as we've already seen, the Bible is, is full of, of this and honest about this experience. Secondly, it's okay to protest to God. This is what the psalmists do. When they're hacked off with God, they, they scream and they shout at God. There's nothing wrong with that. We've become far too polite, far too demure in our dealings with God. When we protest against God, when we, when we scream at God, that's not, that's not unfaithfulness. That's, that's taking God seriously. That's caring about what's going on in our lives and why God's not part of it. It's okay to protest. Thirdly, we combine with our protest a waiting and a hoping. Listen to what Isaiah says. He says, I'll wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. God's hiding his face. But I'll wait and I'll hope. Why do we do that or why can we do that? Because of who God is. Because of his character. Because he will not let us down in the end. Fourthly, we need to exercise our memory. God's people, time and time again, when they're in a dark place, when it's the bad moment, they remember the brighter day and the better times. Remember when God was clearly with us. When he was clearly at work. Those memories help us through the dark moments in our lives. Exodus begins where many of us must also begin. It begins with the absence of God. But it doesn't stay that way forever. Look at the very end of chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. We read that During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abram, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And so God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. At last... It's about time, it feels like. Finally, God's remembered his promises to his people. He's moved to compassion. He's going to act. And he will work his salvation. Friends, that's what we're going to learn about over these next weeks together. And just now we're going to pray 
that each one of us, whatever point we are at in our lives, will have some new experience of God working his salvation for us. Let's join together and pray. Father God, we thank you for the searing honesty of your word this morning. Thank you that this is a place where we can safely talk about our our fears and our failings and our sense that you are not with us. Lord, thank you that we can speak freely before you That even if others might frown on that kind of a language, that others might raise an eyebrow if we speak of these things, thank you that you will not. And as we find ourselves open and honest before you today, no closer to you than we really are and no further away, but just as we are, we pray each one of us, that you'd work your salvation in our lives. Lord, some of us have, have not really encountered you ever in a saving way before. Lord, show us what this salvation of yours is all about. Show us how our lives are, are lost without you. Lord, some of us here this morning have been walking with Jesus for for many years but just now it seems like you're afar off Lord we want to know you again with us to know your presence close and real Lord we pray that you'd continue to work your salvation in us too Lord we pray these things because we're lost without you Amen.